You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Patrick. Good morning, church. It's good to see you guys all in one room at one time. Thank you for coming out to homecoming today. Um, our speakers shortened out a little bit because y'all plugged in a bunch of crock pots. So thank you for coming in. And um, I don't think that's really the reason, but it's my reason in my head. But thank you for coming in and bringing food. Um, I will try to keep my sermon as short as possible, but I absolutely make no promises. I'm going to follow the Spirit. Um, but we are going to have lunch together. Um, I get to baptize my two youngest sons today, Tava and Judah, and uh, several others are getting baptized today. Yeah, praise the Lord for all those that are being baptized. We're so thankful God has saved um, people. He's faithful to do that. We've seen that in the life of our church. He continues to save people, and so we're so thrilled for that. Um, and so we're going to celebrate baptisms immediately after the service today, and, um, and, and then we'll dismiss to eat lunch. But while we're eating lunch, um, uh, Emily and some other folks are going to be helping us take pictures out front, so we've, we'll have some professional photos of you guys. If you want to get your family together and, and drop into that photo booth out there, please feel free to do that. Um, you guys know I got five kids. This is this is one of my least favorite things about being a dad of of a lot of kids is the, is being a detective. Also, um, parents, you know what that's like. Like when you got more than one kid. Maybe if you have one kid, you have to be a detective too. I don't know. But like we have the scenario oftentimes where like one kid hits another kid, and we're like, "Why'd you hit him?" And he's like, "Well, he hit me first. And I'm like, "Did you hit him first?" And I'm like, no, he hit me first. And I'm just sitting there like, "Hmm." And I have no clue. And my wife is like a prophetess. She always knows. Um, but if she's not around, I, I always have no clue. And I'm like, you're both punished. Like, I just can't figure it out. I'm like, I'm trying to be like Solomon, like cut the child in half. Like, I don't know what to do. And, um, and so sometimes what I do is I call witnesses. I'll get some of, you know, this may be the, the one benefit of having a lot of kids. You got a lot of witnesses to the crimes that happen in your house. So I'll call the witnesses in and I'm like, hey, did you see what's happening between these two siblings? But usually they're clueless too and don't have a clue as to what's going on. And, um, and so I'm always wondering how deep should this investigation go? How much should I invest uh, my time into trying to figure out what's happened, happened? Or do I just tell them they're all depraved heathens and preach the gospel? Um, that's probably the best thing to do. Um, but when we look at this passage, um, the, the theme of witnesses is really kind of the main theme of the passage. And so I want to take a minute today to just explain um, how we see what witnesses in the scriptures, um, and specifically in this passage at Jesus's trial. I have three points for you. We're going to see false witnesses at Jesus's trial. We'll also see the faithful witness, which is Jesus himself. And then I want to conclude by showing you as, as Christians, you are called to be witnesses of the gospel, sent witnesses specifically. So let's look at number one, these false witnesses. For Jesus' execution to legally take place, um, he had to go through a trial. A trial legally had to take place um, in Israel at the time of Jesus' arrest for them to crucify him. However, what Jesus got was a poor excuse for a trial. Um, later in the Gospel of Mark, he's going to give us a look at his Roman trial. We'll cover that as we go through the end of the Gospel of Mark. But today we're looking at the Jewish trial. Verse 53 says, They led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and elders and scribes came together. What's described in this verse is what's known as the Sanhedrin. This is kind of the ruling elders of Israel. Now, remember, Israel wasn't just a religious group. It was also a nation. And so Israel rested the, the, the whole political power as well as the religious power in one board, if you will. Uh, they called that board the Sanhedrin. These were 70 elders of the, the nation of Israel, uh, plus one who was the high priest, so 71 men that would gather. And they would also, they were kind of like, they acted like the Supreme Court of Israel as well. And, um, and so Jesus goes before 
um, this Sanhedrin. And Annas was the high priest prior. He was a well-respected man, but the Romans had removed Annas from being the high priest. Instead, at the time Jesus is arrested, there's a guy named Caiaphas who's in power, who is the new high priest, who happened to be Annas' son-in-law. Now, we know from looking at all four Gospels that Jesus went to a total of six hearings on this night. Now, if any of you have ever been to court or had to sit through a court hearing, you know how difficult and, and arduous those things are, let alone being, being the defendant or being arrested or beaten and having to stand trial. But Jesus went through six of those in one night. I just want to give you a grasp for what he had to endure this night. He went and saw Annas first, um, and then he went to Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin immediately after that. And then finally, um, uh, Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin the next morning as well. But in between, he had three Roman hearings. Um, Pilate, um, and then Pilate sent him to a guy named Herod, who was a governor, and then he went back to Pilate again. And so it was a long night of unjust trial for Jesus. And verse 54 tells us one man who witnessed it happen, Peter. It says, Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. Now, last week we talked about this, how all the disciples had fled away from Jesus. But here we see Peter um, comes back and it says that he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Uh, Peter has turned around from being on the run. He follows Jesus, but, but as false witnesses testify against Jesus, Peter refuses to be a true witness. As a matter of fact, we're going to see next week, he straight up denies that he even knows Jesus in the first place. Thankfully, that cowardice would not remain in Peter, though. He, he would later be indwelled by the Holy Spirit, something that happens to us when we are saved and converted, and, and he becomes a faithful witness later. 1 Peter 5.1, the letter that he writes um, Peter writes this later, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. You see, Peter witnessed Jesus' sufferings up close and personal, but he didn't witness for Jesus until later. And this should tell us how strong our depravity is to keep us from doing God's will. This man saw the glory of the Son of God being punished for his own sins, yet it took the indwelling of God for him to overcome that depravity to be a true witness for Jesus. But in the face of injustice, church, we must have the courage to speak up. Amen? The people of God, it's, it, it's not fair for people to be unjustly punished or, or um, oppressed and us to stand idly by as the people of God warming ourselves with worship like Peter warmed himself at the fire. Uh, we ought to have a hunger within us because we have what Peter didn't have in this passage is the indwelling of God himself in the Holy Spirit. That Christians should be a people who boldly and courageously speak up in the face of injustice. But here on this night, in the face of injustice, Jesus has no defense lawyers. False witnesses abound. And they, they control the night rather than the apostles. Verse 55 says, The chief priests and the whole council, they sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And so what this probably means is the Sanhedrin probably sought out people, maybe even hired people, um, to take the stand and be under oath and, and give a false testimony that would be condemning to Jesus. But they couldn't get their testimonies to match up well. You see, the Sanhedrin had wanted to put Jesus to death for some time, and here they see their opportunity. Verse 57 says, Some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I'll destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I'll build another not made with hands. Yet, even about this, their testimony did not agree. What they're referencing is a teaching that Jesus did give, um, and 
the destruction of a house of worship was a capital offense, meaning they could put him to death for that. So this seems to be the angle they're going for, at least initially in the trial, that as he had, um, as he had threatened, so to speak, to destroy the temple. But Jesus was not talking about the physical temple. Rather, he was talking about his body, uh, the temple of his body, and that he would raise on the third day. John 2, 19-21, Jesus tells his disciples and people around, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? And then we have this, this uh, explainer here, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. We know that as we celebrate the death of Jesus, we celebrate because Jesus defeated death, because he overcame death and raised from the dead on the third day. Um, as I was talking to Tava about baptism, I was talking to Tava and Judah last night about what that would be like, and Tava said, so Dad, you got to hold us underwater for three seconds, because Jesus was in the grave for three days. And um, I, I love that, that that analogy caught on in his, in his mind. But Jesus had prophesied of his resurrection, he had prophesied of his death. I mean, he told the apostles exactly what was going to happen, and the sinful actions of man here in the false witness were going to result in a righteous act of Jesus that was going to save you from your sins. The sin of dishonesty is what would ultimately condemn Jesus to the cross. And dishonesty is actually the ninth commandment of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, 16, where we have the Ten Commandments listed, says, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This is probably the most common commandment that you break. Um, I, had, I had someone in counseling one time tell me they had never told a lie. And I was like, well, I got it on record now. <laughs> Uh, I mean, this is, this is probably, I mean, I don't need to go into your business and talk about the commandments y'all break most frequently, but I would go out on a limb and say, this is probably the most common commandment that we break. We lie. We bear false witness. But I also want you to see this morning that you bear false witness against Christ again and again every time you misrepresent the gospel with the way you act, with the way you live your life. You see, false witness is, is not just a, an outright lie. It's misrepresenting something. You see, even the, the, the people who were testifying at Jesus' trial, they weren't telling a, a bold-faced lie. They were taking something he said and twisting it a little bit. And when you misrepresent the gospel by hypocrisy, you bear false witness against the goodness of Jesus. I mean, I, I, I can't keep count of how many times I've invited people to join us at our church and their, their biggest opposition to coming to, to church and being in church is hypocrisy. They say, oh, the church is it's just full of hypocrites. I tried that before. Look, look at me and, and hear me very clearly. I understand that the church has let all of you down with her witness. I understand that we have lied, we have misrepresented Jesus, we have acted in our actions ways that don't match the message that we preach, but let me tell you something very clearly, Jesus has never done that. He has never misrepresented himself to you or anyone else, he has never misled you, and he has always been wholeheartedly good, and so our message is not look at me, our message is look at him. That's what the gospel is. And so I beg you to turn your attention away from us false witnesses and look upon the faithful witness who is Jesus. That's point two, the faithful witness. Um, Jesus has actually called this, um, he's called the faithful witness in Revelation 1.5. Revelation 1.5 says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. This is the title, as John writes Revelation, this is the title that he gives to Jesus. 
the faithful witness. It's, it's, the, it's the opposite. It's the antithesis of the false witnesses that condemn Jesus to death. He's the faithful witness. The Greek word for witness is martus, which means one who verifies truth. And so when they would call a witness, they would call, in, in Greek, martus, someone to take the stand and verify a true account of something. Verify whether or not something was true. Sort of like a notary or a witness in court today. And, and when, you, when you shout amen at a sermon, which I hope you do, because that means I preach halfway decent, but when you shout amen, you're actually shouting out a Hebrew word that means let it be true, or it is true. Um, it verifies. And that's another title that is given to Jesus. He's called the amen of the Father, the amen of God. Uh, the, so what this means by Jesus being the amen and the, the faithful witness means that he is the verifier of what's true. This means that when Jesus calls you redeemed and born again, and the world looks at you and says you're no good and you're a hypocrite, you do not believe the world. You believe the amen. You believe the faithful witness. You believe the one who verifies truth. And what he says about you is good, not because you have goodness in and of yourself, but because he has imputed righteousness to you. He has given you goodness and grace and mercy. He's placed a value upon you. In Revelation, Jesus is described as the ruler of kings on earth and the faithful witness. We trust him. We believe him. This title means that he knows everything. He's like the star witness in a case that knows all the details. He's got all the tea, if you will. Youths, you know that saying? He's going to spill it, too. And, and just like star witnesses in a court case need uh, you know, witness protection program, um, Jesus is the faithful witness because he knows everything and he cannot be silenced. Yet on the night of his trial, Jesus restrained his speech so that he would be taken to the cross. Mark 14, 60, the high priest stands up in his midst and he asks Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? And verse 61 says, but he remained silent and made no answer. You see, the faithful witness who knew all things, who could answer every question accurately, who would absolutely kill it on jeopardy, he knew it all, but he says nothing. He remains silent. And he fulfills Isaiah 53, which says this, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Isaiah 53 prophesied that Jesus, like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearer silent, he would not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. You see, again, this shows us Jesus is in control of the whole thing. It wasn't an accident that he went to the cross. He did it for you. Verse 61, the high priest asks him again, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? Uh, blessed here is a title for God. This is one of the, the best theological and Christological statements in the Gospel of Mark. And it comes here from the very man responsible uh, for putting Jesus to death. He asks him, are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? He's giving a clear a title to Jesus being the Messiah, the anointed one, the prophesied one, the son of King David, his descendant, God in the flesh, ruler of all. Are you that, Jesus? If Jesus says yes to this question, Caiaphas has to either kill him or worship him. He has no other option. There is no in-between if Jesus answers yes to this question. And I would submit to you today that you stand in the same position. When Jesus answers yes to this question, you stand with his blood on your hands, guilty before God, or you bow your knee and worship to him. Those are the only choices we have. 
The one who's calling false witnesses against him is answered by this faithful witness in verse 62. Jesus says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. He doesn't just say yes. He gives him a further detail. And as he's speaking to this judge, this high priest, he gives him a judicial picture. He says he's going to be seated at the right hand of power, which is on a judging throne. And he says he's going to be coming with the clouds of heaven, which is a sign of judgment and wrath that will one day come on his enemies. Verse 63 says the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witness do we need? Now tearing your garments was a sign of of great grief and anger. It's like um, Hulk Hogan is one of the most biblical guys I know because he says brother a lot and he tears his shirt. That happened a lot in the Bible. All right. And, and this, is what, this is what the high priest would do to show their grief when blasphemy would happen. And so what, what the high priest is claiming is that Jesus has committed blasphemy. That he has made himself equal with God. And that was a crime that was punishable by death unless, of course, Jesus is actually God. And again, we find ourselves in the same position as Caiaphas. We've got to either bear guilt upon Jesus' blood, or we've got to receive his blood as the payment for our sins. Jesus is essentially saying to Caiaphas, you are my judge right now, but I will be your judge one day. You are a, a, a judge of me right now, but I am a more just judge over you eventually and a faithful witness. And since Jesus is this judge and since Jesus is this witness, what it means is that Jesus has also seen every second of your existence. He's been a witness to everything you've ever done. And he is also your judge. Not just of the people who put him to death or put him on trial or bore false witness against him. This faithful witness has witnessed everything about you, and he is your judge. He has watched you watch pornography. He has listened to you tell lies. He has listened to your slander. He has heard your gossip. He has witnessed your apathy. He's watched your laziness, your refusal to do the good works that he's called you to. He sees your temper. He sees you blow up in anger. He sees all of that, and he saw all of that before you were even born. I don't know how that makes you feel, but it terrifies me a little bit. We try to hide all of those things from everyone around us, and the faithful witness has seen them all. And matter of fact, he saw them even before we did them. You know what else he saw before we committed those atrocious acts, though? He saw his death on the cross. He saw his resurrection. He saw our redemption. He witnessed our baptism. He, he knows the assurance of our completion of this life with him in heaven and glory, resting all on his good works and not on our own. He went to the cross for that reason. And when they ask him and put him on trial and say, what sin have you committed? He has no sin in himself that he can think of, but instead he thinks of all your sins. And he says, that's what I'm going to be put to death for. Not my own sins, but his sins, but her sins. They'll be laid upon me. Caiaphas says in verse 64, you have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him. Listen to this as deserving death. Not just to execute him, but that he deserved to die. Some began to spit on him. 
They covered his face and struck him, saying to him, prophesy, and the guards received him with many blows. Now, it may be unclear to you what's happening here, but what what they did to Jesus was they blindfolded him, and they played this really cruel game with him where they beat him, and, and they made him guess which guard was striking him. Not only did Jesus know which guard struck him, but he knew every person they had ever punched. He knew everything they had ever done wrong, but yet he remained silent and endured this for your sins. This ought to lead you to a place of just pure worship. That Jesus deserves not just your Sunday today, he deserves your whole life. Your full dedication to him. And they viewed him as deserving death, but this ought to bring a realization to you that Jesus did not deserve death, but rather you do. But this was his mission to take those who deserve death and send them to rescue the dead. What a, what a mind-blowing mission this is, that Jesus takes those of us who deserve death and he commissions us into his kingdom and he says, I'm going to send you to rescue the dead. I'm going to send you to go to the people who are dead in their sins and to call them out of their sin to be in this eternal living kingdom. If you're in your sins today, this is what the church is about. It's not about us being better than you. It's not about us being holier than thou. It's not about us having all our stuff together, like like us putting on our Sunday best. I put on this jacket today. Thank you guys for all the compliments on it, but I got it at Goodwill. It's nothing fancy, okay? Like, we don't have it all together. But Christ does, and we point you to him. That's what the mission is that Christ has put us on. And I want to recruit you into that, okay? And so maybe you're on that mission, maybe you've just been a little slow on that mission, but let me, let me conclude today by calling you into that mission because you are sent witnesses. You can't be the faithful witness, you can't know everything, that's Christ. But I pray to God you're not a false witness, that you're not a hypocrite, but instead I want you to be a sent witness. You see, the crucifixion and the resurrection is the gospel message, and the apostolic church that we read about in the book of Acts is founded on that, that they witnessed The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's the central theme of the book of Acts. It's the central theme of my life. It's the central theme of this church. Let me prove to you that their witness to that was the theme of Acts. Let me just go through these quickly. Acts 2.32. This Jesus God raised up out of that we we all are witnesses. Acts 3.15. Peter says, you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Acts 5.32, we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. Acts 10.39, we are witnesses of all that He did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put Him to death by hanging Him on a tree. It's all gospel-centered. Acts 22.15, even at the end of the book, you will be a witness for Him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. You notice that theme. That those who are in Christ are called to be witnesses. Even at the very beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus tells his apostles this, Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You'll be my witnesses. Martus, same word, witness. And Martus in the Greek is spelled with a Y, but the transliteration makes a U sound but it's, it's M-A-R-T-Y-S is how you transliterate it from Greek to uh, English. But it's where we get our English word martyr from. And I know that, that when we hear witness and martyr, we don't tend to correlate those two words together. But in Greek, it's the same word. 
That when you're called to bear the truth about something and verify it to be true, the implication, at least in the mind of the biblical authors, is that when you verify truth, you're willing to die for that truth. That's how serious a witness ought to take that truth. That you know the truth, you can verify the truth, and you're willing to die for the truth. This is what Jesus has called you to be in the church. You too are sent martyrs sent witnesses that your life is dead and gone. You live for no other purpose than for the glory of God. 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul writes to the young pastor, he says, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses or martyrs, entrust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So I just want to conclude by asking you, how are you doing? How are you doing at giving your life away? How are you doing at discipling others, at making disciples? The, the one the one goal that Jesus has called you to in the Great Commission to make disciples, how are you doing at that? The sad reality is that most of the church doesn't do this. That's the sad truth that we live in. Before I became a pastor, when I was 20 years old, my wife and I went to Mexico, and there was this man we met named Rogelio, and we shared the gospel with him and prayed the sinner's prayer with him, and and, and he professed faith in Christ. And that was the first time that, that I had like personally shared the gospel and led someone to Jesus. And I remember coming back on the plane and deciding I was going to be a pastor. Now, you don't have to become a pastor, but I remember just hitting me like a ton of bricks that I, that I proclaimed to have the keys to eternal life and know the truth, but I hadn't shared it with anybody. Don't leave the country to realize that you haven't left your comfort zone. Like it, it's, it's easy for us to just kind of put it on cruise control and go through life without opening our mouths to share the only thing that's important. And I don't want you to leave here today, number one, without knowing it yourself and without a resolve to share it with others. So let's get serious about this. New Heights Church, you live all over the place. Like we have probably the most regional church I know. Y'all drove in here from all over the place and I thank you for your commitment. But what God has done is he has uniquely positioned us to reach far and wide with this good news. To be witnesses in places where other churches just don't reach, frankly. Let's get serious about this. God has uniquely positioned us. We need to get after it, church. I want you to bow your heads and, and during, during my closing prayer, I just want you to think of a few people who aren't here, who aren't at any church this morning, who aren't living for Christ, who maybe there's even uncertainty. Maybe they even profess Jesus, but you don't see them live it. That There's a few people in your life. I know there's at least a few you can think of right now. Go ahead and close your eyes and put them on the, on the front of your mind. I know there's a few people that you're just, you're just fearful for them. If they would die, that you're not sure that they would, they would go to heaven. God's calling you to be a witness of the truth to them, to verify Jesus' grace in your life to them. And if you're here and you don't know Jesus, let me witness to you. Jesus went through great lengths to pull you out of the sin that you just wallow in day after day after day. The joys that are so fleeting in your life, they will fade away. And Jesus went through so much this long night of trial, this mockery, this torture, this murder, and then ultimately his burial and resurrection to pull you out of your sin and to give you eternal life. Don't waste your life.
He's paid such a high price for it. Don't waste it. Make a commitment today to give your life to him. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.